We're in week two of our series. Last week we talked about uh, the importance of giving our time, uh, the use of our time, and, and all of that which involves time back to the Lord, that time is, is God's, it's not ours, and that we are, as the scripture said, to make most of the opportunities, most of the time that we have because the days are evil. They're going to distract us. They're going to keep us from the things that uh, will have eternal value. And we are to redeem back those times, Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, to redeem back those times so that we can give them as a fragrant offering to our God and Father in heaven. And today, as you're turning uh, to First Peter chapter 4, we center our, our thoughts on the subject of the word talents. And talents is a broad word. In fact, I'm going to be using this heading uh, as a way to signify all of who we are. We're to give ourselves back. In fact, Romans chapter 12 says we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And the talents that we're going to be talking about today are those things that make us who we are. Our very being, our, our gifts, our, the qualities, even our personality that we have, that God has given us, can be used for great works As a result of what he has done and how he has redeemed us, it is our opportunity to give back those talents to the Lord. The Apostle Peter is going to share some words with us regarding this issue of talents. And so if you haven't found it yet, 1 Peter is at the end of your Bible, just before the last couple books. So if you go to the back end of the Bible, you'll find the small book of 1 Peter. I'm going to ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word as we look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. This is what... Peter has to share it with us today. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks... He should do it as one who is speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, we come before you, we gather together, and Lord, our desire this morning is to learn from you, to be changed by you. And Lord, there is much of who we are uh, that we think is, is so insignificant, so small, so unworthy to be used, and yet we know that you have saved us, not part of us, but all of us. And we are told that because we have been saved, we've been brought into a family, and because we've been brought into a family, now we have a responsibility to use the gifts, to use that which you've given to us to further your kingdom, to encourage those that are around us, and to build up the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that that would be the result of these words that your disciple Peter shares with us today. Lord, I pray that you would speak through us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be changed. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be be seated. I have a confession to make. And I was really wondering if I should make, because I'll have to send in my man card, because I'll hear about it from all of the men in the church, but there are very few movies that I've ever found myself shedding a tear to. But this movie in particular really began to tug at my heartstrings, to the point that I had to hide my face from Amanda as we were sitting and watching the movie. 
She says, are your allergies bothering you? No. no. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a little hay fever, dear. But it was a movie that was entitled, and it came out some years ago, called Simon Birch. It wasn't a movie that I was looking forward to seeing. It hadn't made a lot of waves in the, in the media. But, man, I said, let's, let's watch it and let's see what it's all about. And, and we sat down and began to watch. And it's a story about uh, two 12-year-old boys that, that, that grow in their uh, friendship with one another. And both of them have issues and struggles. But very quickly in the movie, you find out that the movie centers around this young boy named Simon Birch. And he's a unique little character. And he has a, uh, an issue right away as he enters into this world. He has some birth defects. And he has maladies and all kinds of issues to his health. And to boot, as a 12-year-old boy, he wasn't supposed to live, but now he's 12 years of age. But his life hasn't gotten any easier because he only stands three feet tall. He's just a little guy. And as a result of that, he's heckled at school. He has very few friends. And yet what you hear over and over again is he struggles with issue after issue and finding himself in trouble after trouble is the overlying thesis of this movie. And it's this little boy with all kinds of issues, with all kinds of struggles, who continues to tell everybody from his classmates to his teacher to even the local pastor in the church that God is going to use me to do something great. And every time he would say, I'm going to do something of significance, each of the people, whether it was the, friend or the kids in the school or all the way up to the pastor, they would say, Simon, I don't have such high hopes for yourself. You struggle just to get around in life. Everything comes difficult to you. What do you think you're going to be able to do? And my heart just went out for this little guy. And I won't give away the whole story. Um, to it. You can watch it at your own leisure. Uh, But what begins to happen is you begin to see that Simon is absolutely right, that God had called him to play a very significant part in the life of those around him. I like what Roger Ebert said about this. He said the following, even though Simon Birch is the smallest kid in town, deep down he knows that he was born to do something big. He's on the constant search to discover his destiny, but somehow he manages only to find more trouble. That defines, I think, a lot of us in this room. We want to think that God is going to use us for great things. We think in our hearts that that God has some great plans and a grand design for us. But as we look at our life, as we listen to other people, people begin to tell us over and over again, don't think you're going to change the world. Who do you think you are? You're just a simple person living in a middle-class community, uh, working an average job. And what we begin to do, especially as, as we grow older, is we become cynical that God can't use us at all, that we are insignificant in the grand scheme of things. For some of us, it's because of past failures and sins that we say we've disqualified ourselves from being able to do anything of greatness when it comes to our God. Still others say, all of my issues, all of my struggles, I'm a broken, broken down vessel. How would God ever begin to use me? But here's the amazing truth that I want you to grab a hold of this morning. The scripture tells us, the psalmist proclaims that every one of us No matter how ugly we think we are, no matter how dumb we think we are, no matter how small and insignificant we think we are, God utters these words by the giving of the Holy Spirit, and he says, you were fearfully 
and wonderfully made. God crafted you. As you were spending those nine months in your mother's womb, God was knitting you together, the scripture says, and he was knitting you together with your personality and, and, and all of the different things that would make you look how you are and act how you are. And, and then when you would uh, come into this world, he would use the experiences to knit together a, a tapestry that would make you the person that you are today. And the reason why he did that was because he wants you to change the world around you. The reason why he did that is because he wants you to live a life of significance. And you say, well, Tim, that's, that's just some wonderful poetry out of, the, out of the psalm. But what about the New Testament? What does it say? After sharing that we are saved by grace through faith, it's not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, Paul utters these words, that we are God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works. God has a plan, he says at the end of that, of what he wants us to do. And these good works are these works of significance that God has for us. Now, none of that will save us because he already told us a verse beforehand that we're saved by grace through faith. But if we call ourselves believers, then our job, our responsibility is to be a steward of what God has done in our lives. Because he has saved me, my job now out of a life of gratitude is to live for him. How much more significant can you get? The God of this universe says, I have a job for you. The God of this universe has brought you into his family and said, I have something so unique for you. Now it's time to do it. Sadly, in our churches today, so many of us are sitting on the sidelines, either copping out and saying, I don't have any gifts. Or saying that I want to use my gifts, but who really needs me? And what God wants you to hear this morning is, he wants you to use the gifts that he has given because it brings him no greater glory than for a child of his, his workmanship, to do exactly what you were created to do. So how do we get there? I'm going to use this passage from 1 Peter to look at three things that we need to find victory and to find success in our search for significance. Oh, the first thing I want to look at this one, it comes right out of verse 7. And what it is, is it's the motivation for our stewardship. If we're going to find true significance as believers, if we're going to find the reason why God has placed us here on this earth, then we have to have the right motivation. So many of us here that are followers of Jesus Christ need to evaluate our lives and ask the question, am I living the life of significance that God has for me, that he desires for me, that he has planned for me since he has saved me what he wants me to do? Am I using those gifts and abilities that he freely gave to me to further the advancement of the gospel? The first thing we have to have is a motivation. Why would we even pursue such a thing? The world doesn't go after it, so why would we? Notice what Peter says. He says right away in verse 7, the end is near. Now this sounds pretty depressing. You would think you would have heard this uh, on, the, uh, uh, on the Titanic as it was falling into the sea. But verse 7 needs to be understood not as a depressing, despondent cry. That the end is near. Oh my goodness. But what Peter is articulating is there's a culmination. In fact, there is a climax that is about to take place. 
You see, when Peter talks about the end being near, he's not talking about a cessation of time. But a chapter, if you will, ending in the grand plan and design of God. Remember, we are born and we are eternal creatures. God has made us to live and to be a part of eternity. And so it's not going to end as we might think this verse is saying. But what he's articulating to us is that that should be a motivation. There is a time where Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to expect that we've done some things in our time while he has been away. The idea of Jesus coming and judging us for what we do can be seen in three of Jesus' parables in Matthew 24 and 25. Write that passage down, Matthew 24 and 25. I don't have time for us to turn there or to get into the text. Uh, It would take forever anyway to do that. But in some time later this week, take a look at reading those. It's during what we call the Olivet Discourse of Jesus Christ. And in them, there are three parables. The first one speaks of a wise and foolish servant. And the difference between the wise and foolish servant is that a master has given them a job to do, and the wise servant gets the job done. The unwise servant doesn't. Then Jesus goes on to a second parable, and he speaks of ten brides who are ready for their groom to come and to get married to their groom. And it says that five of them were wise. They were ready. They were prepared for whenever their groom was going to come. They had oil in their lamps so that they would be ready to receive their groom whenever he came. There were five foolish brides, Jesus says. And they did not keep enough oil in their lamps. And as a result of that, their groom could not find them at the time of the coming, of his coming. And he says that five were wise and five were foolish. And then, of course, a very uh, well-known and and, uh, very popular passage of Scripture speaks of a master leaving and leaving three uh, amounts of money to three of his servants. We call it the parable of the talents. And after a long journey, the master comes back to settle the accounts. And two of them take the money while he's on his long journey and they invest in it and they use it and they bring back that which is more because they had invested in the right things But the one that that Jesus says is a worthless and lazy servant is one who takes that talent, that gift that was given to him, and buries it into the ground, never to be used. And Jesus says, take that servant and throw him out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you want to understand, and there's a lot of interpretations to the Olivet Discourse, and they probably have many different meanings to them, but I think one of the most important meanings that is missed all the time, because we use these parables many times for what is to come and and how we are to know when Jesus is coming, what we miss out on is the stewardship principles that the Olivet Discourse shares with us. Our master has left us, and he's gone into heaven. His name is Jesus And he's given us a job to do. Works that he's prepared for us in advance to do. He's coming back. And in his coming back, he is going to ask, he is going to demand that we settle our accounts with him. The thing that you won't have to worry about as a believer is to settle your salvation question. But the question will be, and the scriptures talk about this over and over again, as believers, we will have to give an account of what we did in this body for the cause of Christ. And Jesus is going to say, hey, I saved you. What did you do with that salvation? How did you use the gifts of the Holy Spirit that I gave you 
for the furthering of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This should serve as a motivation. I don't want to make you fearful, but I want to motivate you to say, I need to use my gifts. Because there's going to be a time where God is going to come back and he's going to ask me, what did you do? And that should motivate us every morning to find ways to live for Christ, to use our gifts, so that when he comes back, we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Now notice he goes on from this idea of the end is near, which speaks of, also just so you're aware, the idea of imminence, meaning it could happen at any time. So we have to be at work each and every day. This isn't something where we look to the clouds and say, well, I think he's coming back, so I better get to work. Peter says, hey, it could happen at any time, so let's be ready. Another passage of Scripture tells us to be watchful and prayerful to the coming of the Lord. And so we don't know when it's going to take place. We can't put it on the calendar as some have in recent days. But what we can be doing is be busy at work using the gifts that God has given us. Notice the second thing. There's a mindset. Verse 8. He says, the end of all things is near. I'm sorry, it's end of verse 7. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Right there in the middle of that verse, we have the word, therefore. And I want to explain that for a moment. Because God has saved us, because he has given us gifts, because he could be coming back at any time, we must live differently than those of the world. We have to live by a different set of ideals. We have to go, if you will, at the beat of a different drummer. And that drummer is Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And what he begins to articulate is it involves two things. First of all, it involves being sober-minded. Sober-minded. The NIV uses the phrase clear-minded. I struggle with that a little bit because I'm not sure exactly what that word means. To be clear-minded, there are some teenagers that are clear-minded right now. They're not thinking about anything. They're just there. And I don't know if that's what the NIV translators were trying to bring out, but I like how the ESV and the NAS does what I think is a better job in translating. And the idea here of that word in the Greek was literally to keep one's mind safe and sound. Literally, it meant to be in one's right mind. They weren't thinking crazy. That they weren't uh, thinking in such ways that would go contrary to who they were and what they were all about. Another definition of this idea of being sober-minded is to put a moderate estimate on oneself. This is just so crucial in our life as stewards because what we have to understand and what our minds have to connect with is that, first of all, there is a God, and that God is not us. If you get anything out of this message, that's it. There is a God and you're not him. And because there's a God and you're not him, then you have some responsibility to that God. Because you're just just as I am, a mere mortal, a mere human being and that has frailties and flaws and issues and struggles. And you are now in a relationship with the almighty, omnipotent, omniscient God. And so as I look at my God in heaven, I say, man, I'm small, you're big. Man, I'm dumb and you're smart. And a lot of you would like to amen those things right now. But when we begin to think that way, then stewardship becomes a real part of our lives. It motivates us. 
Because if I'm in a relationship with the God of the universe and he says, I've got a job for you to do, don't you think we're going to jump at the chance to be a part of that job? I mean, this isn't, this isn't your wife telling you to do something. It's not that dumb old boss that you have on Mondays telling you to do something. This is the God who created the universe. And he says, I've got something for you. And when we begin to understand that we have been called by that God, then we're going to be able to do some great things for him. We will never be the, God, we'll never be the steward that God has called us to until we get our mind wrapped around the job that he's called us to be a part of. So we need to have a right estimate of ourselves, and we need to be thinking clearly on what God has for us in this world. We can't conform to the ways of this world, and that's what brings up the issue of self-control. He says you need to be clear-minded or sober-minded and self-controlled. The idea here is to be disciplined. What it means is to literally, as you reason and think properly and in a sane manner, sober-minded, then you will live a certain way. And so as believers, as stewards, we have to have the right thoughts, and those right thoughts about our God and our role in this world will then lead to right living. And so what happens is, is when I begin to understand that God owns everything, when I look at that car that I have to have, that sober-mindedness reminds me of the scripture that says, why do you invest in things where moth and rust will destroy? Why do you engage in that stuff? And so when you look and the, and the guy in the car dealership says, you got to have it, don't you? You really got to have it. You're able to say because of sober-mindedness, nah, I don't need it. It would be nice to have but I don't need it. You see, this is what signifies the difference between the believer and the unbeliever in the world. And I don't mean to be harsh to uh, anyone uh, who's not a follower of Christ in our midst today, but here's what my understanding is. Christians are called to be sober-minded and to have a rational and, and, and a fruitful understanding of who God is. And as a result of what we believe about God, it changes our behavior. And it changes our behavior to live differently according to the principles of Scripture. The person that does not follow Jesus Christ would say, I really, whatever about God. I, I don't know whether he exists or don't exist. And once you take that away, and the sober-mindedness of that decision, it then leads you to make whatever decisions seem right to you. As a steward, and this is where stewardship comes in, we must remember we are not our own. We were bought with a price. And we are an employee. We are a servant. We are, I might even use the word, a slave unto Christ to do what he's called us to do in his scriptures. And when we begin to understand that, and we begin to understand that one day Christ is going to come, and we're going to have to give an account, our self-control will become a greater issue. We're going to say no to certain things. We're not going to waste our time dealing with things that have no eternal value whatsoever. Even though they may be fun, even though the rest of the world is doing it, we may not do that. We're going to control our bodies and say, this was not what my master told me to use my body for. And so I have to say no to certain things so that I can please my heavenly master so that when he comes, I will not be ashamed. Sober-mindedness will lead to self-control. If we're not sober-minded about our job as stewards, we will miss out on the rest of the passage, which is the main thrust of our message this morning. Because it then leads to, once we have the right motivation, once we begin to instill the right mindset as stewards, it will lead us to the right ministry. The right ministry. Some of you are saying, hey Tim, I thought we were going to talk about gifts. 
we're not going to talk in, in uh, specific about any one particular gift because Peter doesn't do that. But as we have the right motivation and proper mindset, now we're ready to minister. Now we're ready to use the gifts that we have. Now, some of you right away will say, Tim, wait a minute. I don't have any gifts. And even if I do, maybe I've disqualified myself from being able to use them. Tim, I can't preach and I can't teach a Sunday school class. I'm not going to be one of those who goes on a missions trip. I can't sing, therefore I can't help on the worship team. I don't lead a small group Bible study. I don't, I'm, all not that, I'm not all that good with kids, so you wouldn't want me in the nursery or helping with Awana. And yet I would say, even if that was true, and it's not true, but just for your sake, even if that was true... There's still plenty for you to do. Notice what the text says. Even before they get to the gifts, Peter says, first of all, all of us are to pray with passion. We're to all pray with passion. Notice what the text says in verse 7. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. We all need to be praying. And if there is something that all of us can do, and I want to speak especially to those who are more aged in our, in our group that used to be on fire for the Lord, using your gifts and all that, and you're still in your heart on fire for the Lord, but, but the arms and the legs don't move like they used to. You're not able to stay up until 2 in the morning playing games with the youth group, and, and your heart is breaking because you say, I, I want to be serving, I want to be using your gifts, and I would stop and say, you can start with praying. You don't have to do anything. But close your eyes, and in your heart or with your mouth, begin to pray for those ministries that you think are of greatest importance to God. Lord, I pray for those young people. Lord, I pray for my pastor. Lord, I pray for my missionaries. And it's in those moments that we are using the gifts. Did God not give us a brain? Did God God give us a mouth? to utter these prayers. And when we begin to pray, we begin to take our focus off of ourselves and our limitations and we give back to God and looking at it from his perspective because he says prayer changes everything. And so we need to begin to pray. Now, Peter is one who speaks of this as one who would always struggle with it You remember the passage, Matthew 26, 40? Jesus is in the garden with his disciples and he returns to his disciples and he finds them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. No matter how weak our bodies are, no matter our limitations, all of us can pray. All of us can. There's not a handicap in this world. There is not a sin that has been done in the past that can keep us from praying to our God. And so we are to pray. And we are to pray, the scripture says, without ceasing. And so one of the jobs that we have, even before we get to quote-unquote some of the specific gifts, is we can pray. Now he gives another one. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says that we, above all, are to love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. We're to love without limits. Again, there's not, if you have the gift of prayer, then pray. If you have the gift of love, then love. There's no exception clause here. We're all to do it. And these are all commands. Commands for us to live. Now, the reason why we are to do this is because we all have the capability to love. 
God has given us the capability because we are bearers of the image of Almighty God. And because God is love, we have the capacity to love. But it's a choice that we have to make. The word deeply here that he shares, above all, love each other deeply, was used of a runner who had literally stretched out their muscles as they were straining towards the finish line. I want you to know it isn't easy to love some of you. It isn't easy. i got to strain to do it. The sad thing is, is that it's even harder for you to love me. And some of you have to really strain to to say, hey, hey, Tim, are you having a good day? I hope you are. I don't want to do that. But what we're called to do as believers, no matter who we are, is to love each other deeply. We're to love without limits. That's why I believe that 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, is sandwiched between two chapters, 12 and 14 on spiritual gifts. You can't have spiritual gifts without love. I like what uh, Wayne Grudem uh, speaks of with regards to this. Where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. Let me read that again. Where love is lacking, Every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding. And conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. We're never going to be able to serve one another until we love one another. We're never going to have the hearts, the right heart to serve if we don't have a heart that's filled with love. Paul said this of the Thessalonican church in 1 Thessalonians 3.12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Do you love the people in this room? Do you love your neighbor? Our mission statement says we want to love Jesus to the point of transformation. We want to love each other to the point of sacrifice. And we want to love our neighbors to the point of action. And what that means is we must love each other deeply. And that means we're going to have to move some things off of our schedule. It's going to mean we're going to have to give up some things because to do it, it's going to mean sacrifice. To do it, it's going to mean some action. And Paul, or Peter says to us, let's love beyond all those limits because it's what's going to let us serve one another. I'm not going to serve anybody I don't love. So I must love first before I can serve. Next, we need to give with gladness. And he gives a very practical way of giving in verse uh, 9. He says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Since there were no hotels back in Peter's day, this was something that was very important. This is where uh, the people of God could really put some legs to what they needed to do as stewards. If they had a home, they were to use that home for the glory of God. And what that meant was, is as strangers came along and needed a place to stay, they would open their homes gladly, it says, without grumbling. You know, we do a lot of things in this world, but sadly they are nullified in God's accounting system when we do them and grumble. I'll do a lot of things, but i got to be honest with you, I never show it. But in the way there, in the way home from that thing, I many times find myself grumbling. Well, I missed out on another Bears game, or I missed out on this, or I missed out on that, and woe is me, and I don't have any time for myself, and nobody cared what I did. And the sad thing is, is everything I did was a waste of time because at the end of the day, God says, your heart wasn't in it. You're just a clanging gong. You're not doing anything. 
And what we need to be careful is we need to give with gladness. A couple of scriptures that remind us of this, Romans 12, 13, reminds us to share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Third John, verse 5, says, Dear friends, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. Now, we could do a lot more of this as a church and as a people in our culture. But so far too many of us value our privacy and our times alone than we do times together. So we go home and we cocoon ourselves in instead of welcoming people. And that's why we push people to small groups and why small groups happen in homes. So that we can offer hospitality to one another. That we can love on one another in that way. But we can't do it without, we got to do it without grumbling. There's a story of a man who joined a monastery. And he would be given every, he took, took the vow of silence, but they were kind, and they gave him two words to share every ten years. And so after the first ten years, he came out, and everybody wanted to know what he was going to say. And with a loud voice, he yelled, hard bed! Ten years later, he came out a second time. And the words that were uttered were, bad food! Finally, ten years after that, he said, I quit! The other monks commiserated amongst themselves and said they knew it was only a matter of time before this guy quit because he had a bad attitude ever since he arrived. Some of us have been grumbling over and over again for years. And the only thing that comes out of our mouth is grumbling. If we want to use our gifts, I don't care how many gifts you've been given, if you're doing it only with a grumbling spirit, you're accomplishing nothing for the kingdom of God. And so we need to begin to pray We need to begin to love, and we need to begin to give with gladness. Finally, we need to be able to serve with sacrifice. We need to serve with sacrifice. Look at verse 10. Each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. We don't have time to exegete each one of these things, to bring out the entire truth to it, but I think we can look at each of them very quickly and see, first of all, everyone has a gift. Every one of us has a gift. Notice what it says, each one. There's no exception. Who gave us the gifts? Who determines what gifts we have? God does, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. God gives them to each one just as he determines. So God's given you a gift. You can argue with him why you don't have a certain gift, but you've got gifts. Notice the next thing. Each one of us should use. The gift is that is not being used. If you're not using the gifts that you have, you are literally slapping the face of the giver of those gifts. There's nothing worse than you buying something. Christmas is coming soon. I know you don't want to hear that. But you're going to buy gifts for your family and friends. And if you buy them what you think that they they could really use, let's say it's a certain appliance of some sort. In fact, just the best way to illustrate this, I I bought my wife a, a dishwasher. And she said she wanted to have a new dishwasher, and we needed a new dishwasher. And what happens if we go and buy that, and my wife leaves it in the garage and never opens it? I'm going to be offended, because I did that out of love for her, wanting to, have, uh, to give her something that she could use. And if she doesn't use that gift, then it's a slap in the face to me, the giver. We need to be using our gifts. Now notice, it says, whatever gift. It isn't specific. There's a lot of gifts that can be used. We all have different gifts. And we don't have to be yearning and and coveting other people's gifts. We have to find which one works for us. And that's why one of the things we do here at Village Bible Church is we have what we call place ministries. 
And the place ministry's job is to tell you, first of all, everyone has a gift and everybody should use their gifts. And so just in case you don't know your gifts, we're going to help you to be able to define what those gifts are and how you can use them within the church. Whatever your gift is, use it. Notice it's a gift that you've received. Like grace, it's not something you've earned, but it's something that has come not on the merits of your own, but from God himself. Notice it is to serve others. The word serve there is where we literally get the word deacon. It means to be a table waiter. We are to offer the world God's gift to people. God produces the food. He's in the kitchen of this world making all of the food, and our job is to bring it out and place it before people. And when people say, wow, what a great meal, my job isn't to say, well, I worked all day in the kitchen. No, I'm just the conduit. I'm just the middleman who brought the completed meal to you. And so we can't become prideful about the gifts that we have because they are the Lord's. They are to be used to serve one another. It says also that we are to faithfully administrate them. The idea here is that it's not mine. I'm just a manager of these gifts. They're God's. And they're to be administrated as a steward who is one who manages the resources for his master. We've got them for a short time. And that's why 1 Corinthians 4, 2 says, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I like what Irma Bombeck says. When I stand before God at the end of my life, I would hope that I would not have a single bit of talent left and could say, Jesus, I used everything you gave me. We are conduits of God's grace. It says God's grace in a real sense. As we administer God's grace, we are being Christ to the world around us. As you hold that baby in the nursery, as you go and and paint fences for a work project, as you go and are a faithful employee at your job, as you are a loyal neighbor to the people in your neighborhood, you are God's grace to the world around you. Now notice in verse 11, it speaks of two kinds of gifts, those that are speaking and those that are serving. And there are two things that I want to give you. If you have the gift of speaking, then speak the words of God, not your own. It's so easy for us with the gift of talking to talk a lot more than we need to. And what the scripture says is if you're going to talk, then speak the very words of God. This is what God says, not what Tim says. But notice, if your gift is serving, serve with the strength that God provides. God hasn't just let you to your own and you're just this amazing servant. God has given you the strength. He's given you the abilities. And that's why Philippians 4.13 says that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. You see, before we get to use of our gifts, we've got to be servants. We have to surrender to him. Some of you are so worried about finding out what your gifts are that you haven't gotten down the servanthood thing yet. And what we need to do is say, Lord, I want to serve you, and I'll serve wherever you want me to serve, and I'm not worried so much about where you want me to serve. I just want to start doing it. I like what Bill Heibel says, and I'll be closing here in a moment. He says the following. If I had to sum up the key to finding the perfect serving niche, I'd do it in one word, experiment. We have learned that spiritual gifts are less something we figure out ahead of time than something that God reveals to us as we serve. Embrace wholeheartedly your fundamental identity as a servant of Jesus Christ. Look at the needs of your church. 
the needs of your community, then jump in with a willing heart and an open mind. Drape the, towel, the, shepherd, um, drape the servant's towel over your arm and get busy. Why do we do this? Notice what verse 11 says. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Too many of us are not living for the glory of God. We're not living for the significance that God has called us to. Instead of going for God's glory, many of us are obsessed of finding ways for us to look good or finding ways that would please us instead of God. Let me close with these words from a man by the name of Cornelius Plantagna. He says the following, making a career out of nothing, wandering through malls, killing time, making small talk, watching television programs until we know their characters better than we know our own children, robs the community around us of our gifts and energies, and it shapes our life into a yawn, yawning at the God and Savior of the universe. The person who will not use himself, the person who hands himself over to nothing, in effect says to God, you have made nothing of interest and redeemed no one of consequence, including myself. Pursue the life of significance, find your gifts, and start using them so that God would be honored and that God's name would be praised. The greatest and most significant thing we can do is to give God the glory of a life that is busy serving him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for what it's taught us today. It's given us a motivation. We know you're coming back. And we look forward to that day, not out of fear, but out of hope. It's given us a pursuit of a right mindset. We can't think like the world. We need to think as you did, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And Lord, it leads to the right ministry. And Lord, I pray that we would begin to seek out the ministry you have for us. Not serving because someone has just told us to, or someone has begged us to, but Lord, we would find that ministry because we believe you've called us to it. Lord, get us out of the bleachers. Get us out of the stands as spectators, watching others use their gifts so that we can be out on the field, making differences in the lives around us, because of how you have made us and what you have called us to as believers, to use our gifts for the betterment of this world and for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, we enter into this world from this place, and it'll distract us. It'll keep us from the things that are most important. We pray that we would strive each and every day to be the stewards that you've called us to and to say no to the things that will keep us from being the wise stewards that we need to be. It's for your glory. It's for your renown that we do these things. And it is our pleasure to do them because you've done so much for us. In Christ's name we pray and give these things. Amen.